Well, <laughs> thank you, Leslie and Paul. Most of Paul. <laughs> All right, well, let's get right to it. Uh, I have to say it's quite a bit different a week ago to today. Last week was, I mean, it was a gorgeous fall day. Today is a snowy, fallish kind of a day. Well, let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Mark chapter 14. We continue on in our adventure through the last week of Jesus' life on earth, Passion Week as we've come to know it as. Mark chapter 14, we'll read through the first 16 verses. Mark 14, beginning at verse 1. After two days was the feast of the Passover and an end of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. She broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For, he, for it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble you her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For you, have, for you have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do them good. But me you have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. And the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go you into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the good man of the house, The master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared, there make ready for us. And his disciples went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. May God add a special blessing in reading of his word. And let us just bow for prayer prior to our study. Father God, we are here once again with anticipation of what you will do with us, for us, and through us. We would ask today, Father, that those that have come out, that you would especially bless their families. You know their needs better than they do before they know them. Father, we just reach out to you in humility, asking you to do what is best for us, because you know what that is. Father, we know that you are trying, not trying, but you are making us more like Jesus Christ every single day, those that have trusted Christ as Savior. As we're looking to this passage of Scripture, Father, that you would output it up to the power of the Holy Spirit, who we would ask would be exclusively our teacher today. Father, I just pray that we will never have been closer to you than in these moments as we dip into the Word of God, seeing its truth, having it affect us, and moving us to be more of what you want us to be. With that, with anticipation, we ask that you would bless us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen. <clears throat> Well, Mark chapter 14, the passage that we just read, uh, has taken us further in the week. Um, those of you that have been with us, it's been a rather long and engaging journey. We've uh, been traveling through this week. 
Uh, we started in Saturday, actually, um, a week before. Uh, we've been several weeks in Wednesday. And we actually, that's where we end this Wednesday, moving into Thursday, just a day now, ultimately, before the Passover lamb would be slain. In the temple area, on Friday at 3 o'clock would be the beginning of slaying the Passover lamb. It's described for us in Exodus chapter 12. This whole feast, the feast of the Passover and unleavened bread, if you, just for a moment, if you think about this, the Passover would have been the onset. It would have happened on that Nisan, N-I-S-A-N, the 14th. That was the day that the Passover took place. Immediately they're following from the 15th through the 21st of the same month, obviously, um, would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was, it was consecutive. It started with the Passover and then would finish a week later. It was basically eight days in its entirety. That's the frame of mind. That's the picture that's brought all of these hundreds of thousands of people to Jerusalem. Jesus arrived on Saturday, if we're tracking back and reviewing for a moment. Uh, Saturday, He came to Bethany. He came to the home of Mary, Martha, and now Lazarus, who was dead, that He raised from the dead and is living now. On Sunday, that following day, uh, the town of Jerusalem, if you will, the city, had heard that Jesus was in the area. They found out where He was. He was actually at the house of Lazarus. And they came out to see who this one was that literally raised from the dead this his friend. On Monday, he would have been crowned king. He set it all up. It's amazing how Jesus borrowed everything, didn't he? And a world that he created. For 33 years, he borrowed a manger, right, where he's born. He never had a house. He borrowed a place to live, to sleep. He borrowed the donkey to literally become the king, if you will. Now, as we think about this, just poked in my mind for a moment. Nisan 14 would have been Passover, and Jesus literally on the 14th of Nisan, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that day God had determined beforehand, you'll find in Ephesians chapter 1, you'll find in numerous other passages, in fact, Revelation chapter 13, that He was slain before the foundation of the world. God had set this thing up. Now, I'm just trying to figure this out. Now, wait a minute. If you were living in that day and age, and on Monday He was crowned the King of Israel, how in the world would you have this same man, this God-man, on the Passover at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday of that week, would you have him crucified on a cross? That is according to only God's predeterminate plan and counsel. It's the only way it could have possibly happened. But think of this for a moment. The 14th of Nisan, if you go to Exodus... Why don't we go back to Exodus chapter 12 for a moment. Exodus chapter 12 where this all began. They were in uh, the throngs or the throes, the... Uh, capturing control of the Egyptians, literally what brought this all about. You remember the ten plagues, and the last one would have been the death of the firstborn. This sets up what we know as the Passover. Let's start in the Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1. The Lord spake, this Exodus chapter 12 verse 1, The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak you unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day, now listen, watch that carefully. In the tenth day of this month, Nisan, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. Now, wait a minute. What are they doing? What are they doing on the tenth of Nisan? They're selecting the lamb. Now, if you will, for just a moment, I'll see, I'm going to erase some of this stuff. <clears throat> see, anything that God does is not by chance. Everything is predetermined, and it is set out, ultimately, for His plan to be taken place. So, if Friday, at three, uh, Friday, we'll just say Friday, 
is the 14th. Thursday would be the 13th. Wednesday would be the 12th. Tuesday would be the 11th. And Monday would be the 10th. On the 10th, they would select that lamb. That's why they came to town early if into Jerusalem from far off places because they had to have a lamb that was approved without blemish to sacrifice on Friday. Guess what day Jesus was selected as the Passover? Monday, the day he was crowned. That's not by coincidence. Can you believe that? Jesus was the king of Israel on Monday, and on Friday he was the Passover. Oh, my goodness. Now, how would, Jesus, I'm sorry, how would God pull this off? Now, Jesus had been saying for weeks, actually, that he would die. He actually had said just recently, prior to Passion Week, that he would be crucified. He would be buried, and he would rise from the dead. He had said that openly. You could go to the Old Testament and actually see that as well, of that that the Messiah came for a purpose to save men from their sins. Find that interesting. How is God going to do this? You have all, you have these hundreds of thousands of people just a few days before had made him king. He'd cleansed the temple. I guess we could keep going with our review. On Tuesday, the first order of business after becoming king was not to take out the Romans, but to literally go into Jerusalem and to what? Clear the temple. He took on the Jews. He took on the, the Sadducees particularly, I think, because they're the ones that didn't care anything about God. They were just a leader. The Pharisees, which were religious leaders, the priests, which were certainly serving the people, quote unquote, put quotes around that, and they weren't. Ultimately, he took them to task. 35 acres of temple, if you do the math, he cleaned it, cleared it out. On Tuesday and Wednesday were the days, literally, that God returned to the temple for the first time in hundreds of years. He taught fluently with, I'm going to say, with great exhortation. Wednesday was a long day. We've been in Wednesday for how many weeks now as we've been studying this? And we're finally closed out. We finished the last couple of weeks of what would be described as the Olivet Discourse. As he left the temple that night, Wednesday night, and the disciple, one of them said, Oh, I can't, Im what a beautiful place. Isn't this fantastic? It was like he missed it. It went whoof right over his head. What has Jesus been doing the last two days? Cleaning this joint up, making it back to God's. It was a house of prayer, supposedly. He has returned it. Jesus said, just off cuff, he says, you know what? There's coming a day. There will not be one rock, not one stone on top of another, which totally blew them away. As they're walking back to Bethany, which would have been the place of their retirement, you would say, for each evening. That started on Saturday. It's amazing. This all comes back to what we read today. And on Wednesday night, as they're returning to the Mount of Olives, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, it's four of them, say, Jesus, what in the world were you talking about? When is that going to happen? And what is the sign of your coming? Again, front and foremost, if you were going to have a bold and, I guess, a banner that they lived by, that was part of who they were, the kingdom must be able to be starting right now because just two days ago, you were crowned king. It must be the beginning of the kingdom. And Jesus went on to tell them, in actually Matthew chapter 24, 25, a really long discourse, longest answer to any question the disciples asked, the Olivet Discourse. He explained to them when his second coming would come. We've talked a couple of weeks about that. What are we to be doing? Now, those particularly in chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew and Mark chapter 13, the last number of verses, speaks about his coming and how prepared they living in the tribulation period would need to be. But it's also a message for us as well. He told the disciples not to worry in, in Acts chapter 1. Remember when we went to Acts chapter 1, verse 7? Ultimately, he said, don't worry about this kingdom. For you right now, your job is to make disciples and to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. 
Think of that daunting task. Here he is in Jerusalem speaking to these 11. One had gone, Judas Iscariot. Today we find him in our text still there, but it's amazing at this point he really makes a decision. Now, he'd been, he'd been on this decided, I'm getting way ahead of myself. Let's just stop there for a moment. Eleven disciples and Jesus, the day that he ascends into heaven, and he's been in heaven ever since. It's been 2,000 plus years he's not come back. And he told those eleven disciples, you will go to the uttermost parts of the world and, and will essentially evangelize the world. Whoa, that's what you need to be concerned about. You don't need to be concerned about the coming kingdom. That will come. It will take place. These are the signs that will take place. And that generation, that period of time of which this all unfolds, that generation will be here to witness it. It will come very quickly. Now, we are right here, 2022. The tribulation has not started. It's still coming. It's still coming. And Jesus has said to them, now, that's Wednesday night. It's all capped off. Mark chapter 14, we change a day. We're at the beginning of Thursday. Jesus has to somehow now continue and fulfill the Passover. Think carefully now. All of this is commanded. Back in Exodus, every single year, the Passover was to be be taken place. This, however, will literally be the last one necessary because Jesus, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. It's the one place in Scripture that talks about Jesus being our Passover. Literally states it that way. It's the only place you'll find it. Uh, Outside of John 129, which says, remember when John saw Jesus the first time? I just find that amazing. He sees him from a distance and he says, Behold, Jesus? No, behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may have a new lump as you are unleavened. Watch. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. That was going to happen. But prior to that on Friday at 3 o'clock, Jesus had to fulfill the Passover feast. Now, in reading, I'll have to say I didn't get as much background to prove that this is true. But whether you know it or not, there was actually two different dates of which the Passover was celebrated by even people within Israel. The northern people, which were the Galileans, actually celebrated Passover on Thursday night. The Judeans, which would have been the Sadducees and all those living within Jerusalem, Friday night. So isn't it interesting, of the 12 disciples of which Jesus selected, did you know that 11 of the 12 were Galileans? There was only one that was not a Galilean. Who do you think that was? Judas Iscariot. Actually, his hometown would have been 23 miles south of Jerusalem. Kerioth, that's what Iscariot actually refers to, the place where he was born. 23 miles south. The rest of those disciples all would have come from Galilee. That's why it doesn't seem to be non-traditional for them to, sacri- I'm sorry, to celebrate the Passover the night before Judea or Jerusalem normally would, would, set, would, would celebrate it. Isn't that interesting? Really interesting. So here they go. Now they're making preparations. There's a lot of people that are present now at this gathering. God is setting this up. He has 48 hours or less literally to pull this all off. Now let's look at the enemies first. Uh, Mark chapter 14 describes for us. The chief priests and scribes, verse 1, sought how they might take him by craft. That would be like by stealth, by uh, deception, by deceit. And put him to death. In other words, let's, get, let's make that very clear. The last thing they wanted was to attract attention because there are literally thousands and thousands of people that have followed this man called Jesus. They wanted to somehow deceitfully, by stealth, trap him, capture him, and then put him to death. They're just going to secretly get this thing done. And let's go on. 
But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Ah, good thinking, right? This wouldn't be the week. We'll do it any other week, but not this week. Now, wait a minute. God's plan was what? Christ would be our Passover. That's 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday when all of those lambs are slain. They were selected on Monday. They would begin to be killed on Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock. How is he going to get this done? Not even his enemies want to kill him on that day. God's working. Remember the book of Esther? You go through that. That's a fat, it's one of my favorite books. I just, just read through it. And, and the one thing, there's not one time that you see God's name mentioned. Not one single time is God mentioned. Not Jehovah, not Lord, not God, not any, any name of our Lord is mentioned there. And yet, every single verse, you can see God working behind the scenes. He's working behind the scenes here in Passion Week as well. How is he going to do this? Well, let's get a look at these enemies, these chief priests, these Pharisees. Let's go to John chapter 11. And verse 40, I think, well, let's find John 11. As you're passing, turn to John chapter 10, verse 18. Uh, there's another, there's a, there's, a, there's a moment or a thought that continues to reverberate through our world in the fact that Jesus Christ was just caught in a crossfire. The, the revolution just couldn't quite get it done. He was stopped short and he was killed prematurely to what the mission was meant to be. Oh, no, totally false, completely false. Jesus Christ, in fact, in John chapter 10, verse 18, let's turn there before you get to John 11. John 10, 18 says this. Jesus himself, his words say, no man, I'm sorry, verse 17, we'll start there. Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. What is that? My life. But I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. What is that telling us? Jesus literally beforehand 100% said, I will give my life for my Father's will. They didn't take it prematurely. In fact, think of this on the cross. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he's hung, he's hung on the cross. From 9 till 3 is the length of time, which is very short, honestly, for, for a cross execution. At 3 o'clock, now what is, what is a, if you, you know the study of crucifixion, how do you die of, 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 cruci- of a crucifixion? Suffocation. Suffocation asphyxiation. And literally, that's what they kept that one peg on there so they could actually lift up and catch a breath in excruciating pain because that would have went against the nails that were in your feet. I, I, can't, I cannot describe for you, and it's, it's actually very hard for you to even think about a crucifixion. It's extraordinarily painful. It's planned that way. The Phoenicians planned it that way. At any rate, what would be the one thing that could not have happened at 3 o'clock in the afternoon if Jesus literally had died of crucifixion? He would never have been able to say, and it says in a loud voice, screamed it at the top of his lungs, it is finished, which tells us he chose to lay down his life right then, right there. If he was asphyxiated, he would have not had any air to speak. That in itself, the last physical evidence tells us that Jesus laid down his life. Powerfully, powerful. Okay, now John chapter 11, let's come back to what I was, we were talking about, and we'll find in verse 40. Uh, where do we want to go? Verse 45, we'll start there. Now, prior to this, you can do your own uh, homework. In John chapter 11, it brings us to the same page of where Lazarus was raised from the dead. Jesus raised him from the dead. It caused quite a stir, shall we say. Verse 45, this brings us to the conclusion of that. Then many of the Jews, because of what had happened, which came to Mary, that would be Lazarus's sister, and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, what's that council called? 
the Sadducees, I'm sorry, Sanhedrin. The Sadducees were in the Sanhedrin, but there's 70 of them present, the high priest as well, and said, what do we? For this man doeth many miracles. That would have been the cap, right? When's the last time you've called someone out of the dead in a tomb and said, why don't you come forth, Lazarus? And he did. That's a miracle that cannot be messed with. If we let him alone, if we let him thus alone, verse 48, all men will believe on him and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and the nation. Now, wait a minute. Aren't the Romans the enemy? Well, it is to the average Israelite, but literally to those that are the Sadducees, it was politics as usual. The last thing they wanted to lose was their place of position and power, which was granted them by the Romans. So think about that. They say they're the enemy. But you can tell from this inside information, this is, like a drop, this is like a live mic moment. We don't want to lose our power and position with the Romans. We can't have this clown taking us out. No, 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 we've got to take him out. Keep going. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all. You guys aren't figuring this out at all. Nor consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and the whole nation perish not. Oh, my. Speaking, talk about speaking prophecy. He's saying one man should die for all. Yeah, that's exactly the picture. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. From that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. What day was that? Literally just been a few weeks before when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now their mission is to take him out. Now we found from Mark chapter 14 that this one week they couldn't do that because there was too much of an uproar. There'd be a riot, literally. They'd crown him on. Now what they did is everyone underestimated the fickleness of people. They really did. It's the same today, isn't it? Isn't it amazing? Someone today will bless a Christian and tomorrow they will want his life. That's pretty much like what happened there. Everybody misunderstood the fickleness of that crowd. But here we go. So how is this? Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The enemies that God literally would allow to crucify Jesus Christ, the one that made it all and will be the one that will pay for the price, even they don't want to kill him on Friday at 3 o'clock. How is this going to work? Well, let's keep going. His enemies are very clear about their intention. There's no question. Uh, I would like to go, go to Revelation chapter 13 for a moment. Again, looking at the specific timing that God had planned. Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 13. And that chapter is about the beast, uh, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. But look at verse 8. Verse 8 of Revelation chapter 13. It says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. That is, to worship the Antichrist. And, and we've talked about this in the last couple of weeks. When you get halfway through the tribulation period, which is the time literally of God's wrath, this is the worst of the worst. There won't be three and a half years ever, 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 since the time that time began or earth was created or anything from there to the very end that will be any worse than those three and a half years. That's what Jesus Christ said. And that person, this would be the desolation. That's wrong. What did I just say? It's the abomination of desolation. There we go. Got in my head of myself. Abomination of desolation. You want the sign when I'm coming, when I'm coming back? The first sign is when you see the Antichrist putting his image, putting himself in the, in the very focal point of the temple in Jerusalem and asking to be worshiped. That's literally the whole world will worship him. Now let's keep going. Revelation chapter 13. And all that dwell on the earth will worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the, watch now, of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1. Turn there. 
follows up this, this theme very carefully. Ephesians chapter 1, and let's take a look at verse, I think it's 4. Ephesians 1, verse 4. According, Ephesians 1, 4, according as He, God, hath chosen us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him. There's no coincidence going on here at all. Jesus Christ died at exactly the right moment in time that was predetermined from before time began. God is fully, and you think in 2022 God's not in charge? It looks like a wreck. It is a wreck. But you know what? The final wreck is the tribulation period of which we have not entered. I don't want to be here. You don't want to be here. <laughs> okay, let's go back. Let's see, where did I leave you before we chased off? Da, 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 da. Let's go to Luke 22.22. 22. That's one that's in my notes. Oh, I know what it says. Luke 22.22. 22. This is interesting as well. Luke 22.22. 22. It says, And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. As it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas Iscariot played the role, but even if it wasn't Judas Iscariot, it would have been someone else to play because the time, the purpose, the place was all predetermined before the foundation of the world. John chapter 11 describes for us how the religious leaders were going to respond. How would this happen? Well, let's go back to Mark 14. Let's find our time frame now. This is you have to, a little bit tricky here because we've been following very chronologically from Saturday all the way to Wednesday night, and we're about to get into Thursday where there's directions given for them to, to celebrate the Passover. But watch. It's like a parenthesis. It's, have, you ever been in, have you ever watched a movie where they'll, they'll give something that happened, they'll give a, a, an immediate happening, and then it's like you slip back into time how that happened. You know what I'm talking about. That's exactly what's going to happen right now. Well, watch carefully. It describes for us where they are. They're two days before the Feast of the Passover, which would be Friday night, of the unleavened bread, that whole period, if you will. And it says that the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take by craft and put him to death. That had been going on for a couple of weeks. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. They're looking forward, saying we can't do that. Now, verse 3 tells us exactly the situation that places the, the, the uh, shall we say, the formulation of a plan from the one that was instrumental in betrayal. But it's not on Wednesday. It's not on Thursday. We'll have to go to John to find out exactly the time frame. This actually happened on Saturday. This event that we unfold where the woman Mary, which we'll find her name in John as well, this event took place, but it sets up the heart condition for Judas Iscariot that lays it out to the chief priests and Sadducees and Pharisees to betray him for them to kill him. But watch carefully. Let's go ahead and look now at verse 3. It says, and being in Bethany, that's how Mark describes it. That's not enough. Being in Bethany, well, what time frame? Let's now hold your place here and let's go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 gives us exactly the same picture, if you will, of this, this anointing by Mary. You'll also find, you might uh, put it in your notes, Matthew 26. Matthew 26, 6 through 13. But here we go. John chapter 1. He fills in a lot of spaces. John chapter 1. I'm sorry, John 12, verse 1. Did I finally say it right? John 12, 1. Now watch. Then Jesus... Six days before the Passover. When is the Passover? It's Friday. Go back six days. What day is it? Saturday. This is the previous Saturday. Watch. Where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. 
There they made him a supper. Now it doesn't say, did you notice it didn't say in whose home he was at this particular gathering. Hold your place, go back to Mark chapter 14, verse 3. And being in Bethany, that's where actually Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were. This is probably a neighbor. Being in Bethany in the house, oh, he's in this house, of Simon the leper. Now, of course, that would be a former leper because lepers were outcasts. You certainly could not have had a feast or a gathering in a current leper's house. So what is that probably telling us? Jesus healed this man. This is maybe a thanks. Uh, Let's have a supper. I can't believe how how my life has changed because Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, healed me from leprosy. So now they're in Simon's house, but the key component, the key person here in this is Mary. Let's go back to John 12. You're going to be flipping back and forth. Verse 2, chapter 12, John. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. Of course Martha served. Martha's the server. If you remember back when Martha was was actually um, hosting a supper for Jesus and his disciples, she came out finally just exactly. You can just see her apron's half torn off, and she's just sweaty. She said, Jesus, tell my sister to help me in the kitchen. (laughs) Right? So you know Martha's not going to be the one that's going to anoint him, right? Because she's a busy, busy person. But Mary, Mary's the one that was what? Remember where she was at? She was at the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching. Now keep going. Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary. Oh, there's the name of the woman that was listed for us in, in, in Mark. Mary's that woman that took a pound of ointment and spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of ointment. Let's stop there for a moment. This is very, very significant. Um, In fact, Mark chapter 14, if you go back there, you will find it describes for us a little bit differently. As he sat at the meal, verse 3, there came a woman, this is Mary, having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. She broke the box and poured it on his head. This is a full body anointing. Now, ladies, you're a lot more familiar with perfume than I am. I'm not even going to try to get there, okay? But if you can think about this for a moment, this spike nard or nard literally is still imported from India. It's still used for perfume purposes. This was pure, undiluted nard. It was in an alabaster bottle, which would mean it was very long-necked and probably through just a very tiny orifice to be able to put one or two drops on because that's all it would take. Uh, the cost of this bottle, if you would have went down to the, norm, uh, to the, to the um, neighborhood uh, perfume shop, it would have cost 300 denarii, which would be one year's wages of an ordinary worker. Now, that'll roll your eyes back in your head. Whoa, that's a lot of denarii, right? But here she is on this night, Saturday, six days before her Jesus would be hanging on a cross. Now, Again, I have to think about, let's think about this for a moment. Let's just, for a, for a second, just set all of these details aside. Why would Mary do this? This is the same Mary that we just read about. And in fact, if you go back to your, I told you to read those previous verses that the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all of the scribes, we have to kill him. Why? Because he raised Lazarus from the dead. This would be the same Mary that upon Lazarus' death, would have anointed his body for burial after he was dead. Jesus had said very openly, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be buried, and I will raise again. 
Do you see how intuitive Mary was? She's anointing Jesus' body for burial before he dies. Is that not really cool? She's giving a love offering, a whole, and she didn't, she didn't just put a drop on. Baby, she broke the bottle off and poured it on his head, and it was full. Now, can you imagine the aroma? And the, I'm almost there. I can just catch it. It would have been capturing, right? In fact, some of you ladies, oh, my goodness, that'd be overpowering. That was her impression. She wanted to show so much of a worshipful love offering. That was her way of doing it, anointing her Savior's death before it happened knowing that he had also said that he would rise again. See the significance of this person, Mary? She had saw her brother die, that Jesus had raised from the dead. She would have been the one that anointed and made his body ready for burial. Do you see what she's doing here? She's preparing Jesus before he died. She is listening. She's paying attention. Now, 300 denarii, that's significant. (laughs) That's a powerful love offering. You talk about putting tithes in. She literally took what... And these aren't prescribed to be wealthy people. But somewhere along the line, she purchased that bottle. And she took it all. And she placed it on her Savior's head. And would have anointed. In fact, wiped with her hair his feet. They were gathered around, you know, and we always have these tables that are pretty nice. That's not the way it was. <laughs> they were reclining. In other words, you're on your elbow, if you will, and you're eating. Uh, if you have your feet cleansed, that's a good thing, <laughs> if you can think about it, because the feet were very obviously exposed. In fact, they were right next door to your neighbor's nose, <laughs> honestly. So you see the important, and they always, they, when you came in, remember that's what happened at the next night during the time that they celebrated the Passover on that Thursday night, which they're going to be getting ready for today. Literally, we'll see that in a moment. That's why they always washed their feet. It was just the right thing to do. But she, on this meal, she came to totally anoint her her master, her savior, her teacher, her rabbi, getting him ready for what would come just a week from then. Not even quite a week. Do you see how much more flavor, how much more we get out of this now? This is Mary. This is the true heart of Mary. Man, I'll tell you what. Now, of course, there was objections. No surprise here, when, there's, when God is being worshipped, when Christ is being worshipped, there will always be objections. Happens today. So who is the first to lead this murmuring, this inside indignation, if you will? Well, none other than Judas Iscariot. He's always looking out for, oh, that's right, himself. <laughs> Imagine that. He was a money guy. He loved the money. In fact, I'm sure when, you know, and I, I'm saying, I would have to say that Jesus' treasury account was rather small, right? I mean, it'd have to be. There'd be no reason for it to be large, right? It didn't have to have a large bank account. And so who do you think instantly came to the fore? I'll take care of that. I'll, I'll take care of the money. Judas, right? Now, Jesus knew who this clown was. He knew him very well. He knew him better than he did. Did he worship money? He loved it. Now, for him to watch from a distance, Jesus was, there was no love in Jesus. I'm sorry, there's no love for Jesus in Judas's heart. He's along only for the goods and the glory. He got on this team just to get rich. Because it's thought of, if you read through the scriptures, the Messiah, he would be coming as a king. If you have a king, you have a kingdom. You have a kingdom, those that are close are going to be rich. That's that simple. And now to watch this waste, that's the word that's used. Interestingly enough, he uses the word, this waste, uh, just in John, I can't remember the chapter and verse right now, but that same word 
is used in the word perdition. Now think of that. What he saw as waste by anointing Jesus, literally he's described as the son of waste. He wasted his whole life by worshiping money. Isn't that something? Well, here we go. Mary is giving, I'm going to tell you, just an amazing response to this, her Savior. Now, it, now of course, J- Judas has a wonderful excuse. He says, verse 4, there were some that had indignation. Now, if you go to John chapter 12, I've asked you to just go in and just kind of, kind of flip back and forth. It names him. John chapter 12. And then saith one of his disciples, not just some of the disciples, he's the one that started this. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, said, which should betray him, why was not this anointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound charity above all? I think there's a, there is a principle here because, well, Jesus goes on to say, then, then he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the bag. He was the treasurer. And bear that was with, within. But Jesus said, let her alone. Against the day of my bearing has she kept this. He knew what she was doing. She knew what, he was, what she was doing. For the poor always you have with you, but me you have not always. Now, that's an interesting thing. Charity is good. No question about it. Helping the poor, you'll find it in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. Charity is it's, it's recommended. It's highly thought of. But it's second place to worshiping God. Worshiping God is always the ultimate good. Charity is actually driven by the worship of God. The more that you worship God, the clearer you see those that are in need. Isn't isn't it true? The more that we worship God, the clearer we see needs. But needs are never more important. Uh, Needs of people are never more important than worshiping Christ. Never. Because that's literally what drives the whole thing. And that was Jesus' response. You will always have poor with you, and yes, it's important. But she is literally anointing me for my burying that's coming. This is happening on a Saturday. Do you see why it's here now? It's placed within this, and it was in John as well, this parenthesis, this back in time on Saturday, even though we're on a Thursday morning, Wednesday night, Thursday morning, what has it done? It has set up what drove Judas to literally betray our Savior into the hands of the chief priests that want him dead. And they want him dead as soon as possible, except this week. (laughs) And you know what? Even though they chose not to, God said, it will happen exactly as I pre and foreordained it to happen. So here we have Judas in his heart, Saturday night. He then goes out to make a deal because of this. Does it say it here? Yeah, it does. Uh, Mark chapter 14. It says that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. Ah, I've stopped there for a moment. How could you follow Jesus for three years, 24-7? You had watched him raise one in that room on that night whose sister now had anointed. Just think of that for a moment. Just let her alone. Her brother is alive because of this man that she's anointing. He'd watched him calm the seas. He'd watched him relieve demoniacs from demons. He'd watched him be powerful over every single circumstance of which he was ever encountered. Not one time was Jesus ever thwarted in his purposes. Not one time. And yet this one that is described as one of the twelve, if that isn't the most 
I, I just don't even have words for it. It just makes me sigh inside for someone to be that close to the Savior and yet that far away. He is in eternity in hell, ultimately, for him to betray and to literally love money more than the Savior. Watched him in action for three years. How many people are sitting in churches today that have been exposed to the Bible, that have been exposed to truth, that still don't get it? They're a lot like Judas. They're a lot like Judas. Isn't that something? <sighs> Crazy. But it says, uh, one of the twelve, he went on the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. Well, of course, that's all he wants. In fact, have you thought about how much 30 pieces of silver is? That's exactly right. The price of a slave. Let's go to Exodus chapter 21. Let's find that. Exodus 21, and I believe it's verse 32. Exodus 21. Let's take a look at the price of what that really is to, to uh, see. Am I right? Yeah, there it is. Verse 32. Exodus 21. These are laws concerning personal injuries. And it says, If the ox shall push a manservant or maidservant, in other words, kills this servant, he shall give unto their master 30 shekels of silver. Judas was going to betray the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Son of man, the one that had come to live for 33 years to literally lay out the plan for redemption for the rest of mankind. He would sell him, that one who created everything, for the price of a slave. One of the twelve. Oof. And then it goes back to, if you go back to Mark chapter 14, verse 11, it says, He sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now let's lay this out. We have the enemy, we have the betrayer, and we've seen Mary, I would have to say, his, one of his closest friends. She's anointing him. We have the enemies that say, well, any week, but not this week. The betrayer that is looking for that private moment that very private moment where he could kind of bring in the cops, so to speak. They'd quietly, secretly take him away. And then guess what Judas would do? Take his money and just kind of, just silently cruise into the sunset. He's going to leave anyway. This isn't going to go anywhere. He can see that. This Jesus is too much of a pushover. I mean, he was just elected king, for heaven's sakes, on Monday. And on Tuesday, what does he do? Nothing except clean the temple. Judas is out. This has been going on since Saturday, though. Can you imagine how disgusted he was with Jesus by Tuesday, Wednesday? Here we are. The chief priests are excited. <laughs> They're ecstatic. They finally got this Jesus. They've got him. All at the hands of Judas. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26, verse 15. Matthew 26, verse 15. Verse 14 says, it's the, same, it's the same passage from Matthew's account. It says, then, then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said, verse 15, unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. Now, it's obvious that they didn't think any more of him either. They just saw him as some servant. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him, looking for that right chance, that right opportunity. I'd like to take just a little bit of a, of a, of a set-aside now. Uh, do you remember, we'll, we'll find this, um, 
maybe next week, yeah, it'll probably be next week, that Judas Iscariot goes to this Passover feast that's been being prepared. We'll be talking about that in a moment now. Um, by two disciples they go, and they're going with, with specific, unique signs. And Judas Iscariot shows up there. And he asks Jesus, who he thinks Jesus is totally unaware of his heart condition. Is it I? <laughs> you know, you can, in, his most, in his most, shall we say, most bland, innocent kind of voice that you could possibly imagine. Oh, Master, is it I? <laughs> and Jesus said, you have said. And then it says something. And it says, Satan entered into him. Right? Now that's, how many times, and I've thought this too, because it seems so obvious. Why would Satan enter into Judas Iscariot at that time? And you're thinking, well, obviously to get Jesus killed. Right? You're not going to go there because you obviously some sense of question on my part, right? What would Satan be entering Judas Iscariot for after he had just, Jesus had just disclosed for us, us as readers, and the disciples missed it. It was, poof, they still thought Jesus was a good guy. They thought he was still the guy that was taking care of the poor with, because he's a treasurer. But once something is offset that is far enough apart, we never really think about it. On that night, it says that after having the sop, Satan entered into him. What's, his, what's, his, what's he going to do now? We know that he's going to go betray Jesus. So obviously we just think, or it seems natural, that Satan is going to push Judas along to make this happen as quickly as possible. I don't think that's true. Because let's see what else Jesus said about where Satan was at. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16 for a moment. Matthew chapter 16. It almost seems diametrically opposed. Matthew 16, but again, the bottom of all of this today is I want you to see the sovereignty of God in His predetermined will to accomplish at 3 o'clock on Passover day, Nisan 14th, to get exactly accomplished what He wants, even though those participants either have no idea or think things will be very different. Matthew chapter, what did I say, 16, there we go. Matthew 16, let's take a look at, where are we going to go? Verse 21, Matthew 16, 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and to suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Okay, that's the story. This isn't the first time, he, but he continues. Oh, this is actually when he really makes us a point. And we found in our study through Mark that he's been saying it numerous times, at least four or five times in Mark alone. This isn't secret. Then Peter took him, verse 22. Now, wait a minute. If you go study verses 13 through 20, you'll find that Jesus asked the disciples, and Peter responded, Who do you say that I am? And Jesus responded, Thou art the Christos, the Son of the living God, which is the right answer. So he's spot on. That's is Peter, the same one. Just moments ago, had just responded correctly. Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. What is that? That he's not going to be killed, right? That he's not going to be put in that position of being crucified. Now watch this. But he turned and said unto Peter, this is Jesus now, he says to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Wait a minute. 
Jesus has just exposed and expounded upon the fact that he is going to be crucified, dead, and buried, and risen again. And Peter says, oh, no, 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 stop it. Don't say stuff like that. You're the Christos. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Your kingdom is coming, essentially. And Jesus responded by saying, get behind me, Satan. That has nothing to do with the predetermined counsel of God. So now you're confused if you think that Satan entered into Judas Iscariot to get him on a cross. Doesn't that sound odd? It's because it is. Satan understands, I'm not trying to get in Satan's head. I don't want to be there. There's nothing good there. But I have to believe that Satan is nothing other than extremely wily, smart, and brilliant because he was created that way. And if you think that Satan doesn't know the Old Testament scriptures as well as anyone, you're mistaken. Does he not know exactly what God had set out to do through Jesus Christ? Think of him tempting Jesus now. Forty days in the wilderness, right? Didn't eat, didn't drink. First thing he does is he wants him to turn those rocks into bread. Remember the last thing he promised him if he would worship him? Do you know what it was? He would give him all of this world, all of this kingdom. And guess what? You don't even have to die. Satan never wants to see Jesus die because if he does, he knows he came for the purpose to redeem men and women for Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ will redeem for God for eternity. That's the last thing Satan would want. So why would Satan enter into Judas Iscariot the night that he was betrayed? Satan even believed that this would be the wrong time because there's hundreds of thousands of people that now look to Jesus as their king. The last thing we would want to do is to try to arrest him now and to to put him to death. So why would Satan enter into Judas? To push this rioting along, if you will. The The quicker he could get him to betray Jesus, the faster the riot would happen and Jesus would not be killed. I can come up with no other conclusion because Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan, for saying that I won't be dead that I won't be crucified, that I won't be buried, that I won't literally fulfill all of the Old Testament scriptures. Satan thought, yes, this is just like the chief priests. Not this week. The best thing we could do right now, Satan, is to try to get him to betray him this week, the crowd, the riots would be, and they would not kill him. Satan never wanted Jesus dead. Oh, no. From the very outset... He promised him everything without dying. Always something before it would happen. Isn't that, the, isn't that usually the lust of sin? Getting something before it's time? It's pretty interesting to look at it that way, isn't it? Satan doesn't want Jesus dead because if Jesus is dead. Now, he certainly tried to keep him dead. Once he's on the cross and he's crucified, and he couldn't do Oh, I missed that one. I didn't realize what? The fickleness of people's hearts. Crucify him. They traded Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist, that was a murderer, that was a, he was, his middle name was crime. They traded him for Jesus. Four days after, they crowned him. Even Satan missed it. Is this not making God and his predetermined counsel even more powerful, more amazing? Even Satan missed it. He missed the timing. He missed it all. God is still in control. Still in, and He is in control in this country today as well. He is in control in this world today. 
We see a lot of evil. We see a lot of things that evil is doing. We see a lot of misery, and you know what? It's still at the hands of sin. The biggest problem this earth has ever had is sin. It will remain to be until the very end of time when Jesus Christ comes crashing down, standing on the Mount of Olives at His second coming, and will judge sin once and for all. We're headed there quickly. We're headed there quickly. Be prepared. That's the same. What did he, he spent more time just a few hours before teaching those disciples, you must be prepared. You must watch. Now, it wasn't for them to see the end of the tribulation. It's just as much for us today. There are men and women today that their life will end. It'll be the end. This will be their last day on earth. Were they prepared? Were they prepared by accepting Jesus Christ as Savior? That's the very essence we have of the sense of being watchful, being prepared. Remember the, uh, the, ten, the ten virgins that were gathered? It was a parable that Jesus spoke. There was five wise and there was five foolish. They appeared from the outside. They were all, they were bridesmaids. They were friends of the bride. Who is the bride? Well, we're not even told, but it doesn't matter. The bridegroom at the time, if you think about this, just for a few moments here, the bridegroom, there was the time of, remember Joseph and Mary? The betrothal period. That was literally an engagement period, way more than engagement to us today, where the guy gives a ring and they're engaged and you know, they get married later. A betrothal was literally the marriage ceremony. And then the bridegroom had up to a year to acquire whatever, it was, whatever was necessary for him to get a house, a place to live, and some way to protect, to provide for this woman that he has betrothed, that he has literally married. The consummation of that marriage did not take place until the bridegroom returned back to the home of the, of the, uh, the bride who would be her, her father's house. And those 10 bridesmaids, these are significance about 10. Uh, you can find 10 in the sense of, uh, in, in a lot of ways in that regard. It, there's nothing probably significant about it, but is there, was half wise and half foolish? No, it, the point was made that we needed to be prepared. And those five foolish, they look the same, they sound the same. They're invited to, right? They're invited to be there. There's something missing. There was one thing that they had not taken attention to taking. That was oil for their lamp. What is oil? That's the life. That's literally the Christian. To be a Christian, you must trust Christ as Savior. It was like there's so many attending church today. Not this church. I'm saying any church, quote-unquote church, that literally fit, live, breathe there, but aren't saved. They haven't trusted Christ as Savior. And then it says the bridegroom came at an unexpected time. When do you think Jesus Christ is going to come? When anyone dies, is it, is it expected? Normally it's just that moment and no one would, would ever know. When is he coming at the tribulation at the end of that? At an unexpected moment. When will the rapture happen? At an unexpected moment. Each and every place of any people living ever on this planet need to be prepared to meet their Savior, or in this case, lack thereof. Those five foolish virgins which looked apart acted the part, were not part. You will find in the end of that parable that literally the door was closed and it was done. It was over. There was no way to get in there anymore because he said they didn't, he didn't know them. There was no relationship with them. Man, that's something for us to be cognizant of as well. Are we prepared? Are we watching for what's going on? Yes, it was to the end of the tribulation period. Those that were awaiting Jesus' coming, that's what it's about, but it's the same for us today. It was the same literally for Judas Iscariot. Was he prepared? No, he wasn't. He lived right there. He fit right in with those other 11 disciples. They thought he was one of them. He fooled them all except Jesus. What a tragedy. 
What a tragedy. Our Jesus did everything that he was accomplished to do. He did it exactly the way it was planned to be. And he did it even with the rest of the ones that put him to death didn't believe it could happen. Satan didn't think it could happen. Judas Iscariot was looking. Now, let's go to the last portion of our text today. There's something that's bugged me. So we're going to have a Passover meal on Thursday night, which is common to Galileans, right? That fits. In fact, they ask him, you know, it's kind of like close. It's like, you know, like tonight? <laughs> Should we, what, what are we doing? I mean, we need to do this because we need to fulfill the Passover. And Jesus, now listen carefully. Jesus, I've said it earlier today, Jesus absolutely knew that he had to complete the Passover uh, order this time. Now, after Jesus fulfilled the Passover himself on Friday at 3, you know what? The, law, the Passover was no longer necessary because he was the blood by which sin was redeemed. He was the blood that was necessary for the angel of death to pass over. If you are under the blood of Jesus Christ, you are safe. If you are not, you are not safe. It's that simple. In the power is the blood. I'm sorry, the power is in the blood. That song that we sing. Okay, now I lost track of where I was going to go. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, wouldn't you... Now, just think of this. So, the disciples ask, hey, where are we going to have the Passover? Now, wouldn't you say Jesus has this in mind, obviously. Well, you know, if you just go down to the 600th block of South Avenue at house number 1014, that's where we're going to do it. Doesn't that sound right? What's all the intrigue? What's all the mystery? And you can tell it's unfolded that no one knows except Jesus himself. Now, what did we just read? What was our parenthesis about? That Judas is going to try to betray Jesus secretly, conveniently, at a private place so that literally the chief priest could quietly, silently put him to death and our situation problem is over. Now, think for a moment. Where would Christ and the disciples be celebrating the Passover? In a quiet place, all by themselves. Who's listening to this conversation? Judas is. Wouldn't it be a convenient time for him to just, oh, guys, we've, now, I want to use the phone because we're so phone-oriented, but he would just slip down to Jerusalem, down to the little place the chief priests are kind of gathering. He said, guys, I got it, I got it. We got the perfect place tonight. He's going to be at the 600th block on the South Avenue, and I forgot what I said, like House 21014, right? That's where he's going to be, and I will set it up for you, and you just take him, and it's done. But Jesus knew that. So what did Jesus do? He gave mysterious details for Peter and John, that's the two that went, for Peter and John to go to prepare this place. What does he do? He says, tell you what, guys, go to Jerusalem. And by the way, the Passover had to be celebrated within the precincts of Jerusalem. That's where they're going. They've been in Bethany each and every night. He says, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and you are going to see something. You're going to see a man carrying a pitcher of water. And I'm like, Oh, that should really narrow it down. <laughs> but you know what? It does narrow it down because it was the women that carried water. A man carrying water would be a total weird incident. So they go there, and of course, they were given instruction. Now, when you see that guy, follow him. And whichever house he turns into, none stated or named, you ask the owner of that house, where do you want... Now, it doesn't say Jesus. Did you notice? There's so many things that are left out. It doesn't say the Christ. doesn't say the Messiah. doesn't say the King. doesn't say... It says, 
the rabbi, the teacher, or the master, depending on the version you read. The master wants to know where it is that we could actually have a room for this supper tonight. And then he will tell you, and then you go ahead and prepare it. Now, did you see how it was just amazingly unique because nothing was stated. When Judas got to that place, he didn't know where he was going to be, right? Because they went together as a group. The two never came home. That's the other thing that's stated. Peter and John never came home so that Judas could have said, hey, guys, 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 where did you end up going? What was the address of that place? They never came home. No, in fact, the 10 plus Jesus went to them, and Jesus knew where they were going. You see how it's so interesting to see the minute details that are left out in this case or are left in. As he goes that way, Judas Iscariot, not having a cell phone, not being able to text. Oh, guys, I got it right here. No, no, none of that. There was no way to take Jesus because Jesus wanted to fulfill that Passover. He wanted to have those moments, which earlier, John 13 through 17, to more fully expose more truth to the disciples, for them to fully understand even to a higher level of what his predetermined will was going to be. He certainly did not have in his agenda or God's agenda a place for, for Judas Iscariot to betray the Son of God into the hands of the chief priests and thwart the completion of the Passover and miss Friday at 3 o'clock. As Judas went into that place, he couldn't have left. It was too late. Now, it says he did leave. It says Satan entered into him. Because Satan really was struggling. He couldn't have even told them, right? He didn't know what it was until they got there. Do you see it? The details are so cool in how this is laid out. Now, it does say that Judas left that night to betray him in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Jesus was pouring out his heart saying, if this cup could pass from me, may it be but your will be done. If that isn't a way for us as Christians to pray, I can't think of a better way to pray. There's some difficult times that you're going through probably. There are trials that you never saw coming. There are things that you can't even imagine happening to you that have happened. And yet, know this. When we're in God's will, there's no better place to be because He is still fully, completely, 100% in control regardless of what circumstances look like. If you take a look at those disciples on Friday at 3.30 p.m., they would have all but had to have given up. Even though Jesus had said, I'm not going to just die. I'm not just going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried, yes, and rose and rise again. But it's amazing how once someone is dying on a cross and says it's finished and he's dead, and they put him in a tomb for being to be excited about that. Right? I mean, it would be like this. Oh, we wasted three years. I can't believe it. I, I thought he could do it. How many times have we short-sighted God because we're in the middle of something that we don't know the end of? When Jesus said it is finished, it wasn't the end. It was the beginning. It was the end of the beginning. We're here to say the beginning is just happening. We don't even see it yet. The Word of God is describing for us what eternity is. All of this fits perfectly within Jesus' plan to follow God's inordinate, His, His predetermined counsel that 100% unfolded. We'll get into it next week, where the chief priests, the scribes, the scribes, Pharisees, all of those guys come together and they illegally condemn Jesus Christ. And the timing is perfect. <laughs> God uses even Satan to accomplish his purposes. Isn't that amazing? Look, look at look, look, if you thought Satan really went, remember when he when he going back to the book of Job, just popped in my mind right now. Okay? Job. 
If Satan actually thought for a second that him taking Job and torturing him, I can, yeah, that's the best word I can come up with, Satan tortured Job, that ultimately at the end that that would be a book in the Bible of which people are risen to the sense of enthusiasm knowing that if Job can do it, so can I. Do you think Satan would have bothered? Of course he didn't. God used that example. Now, Job, at the middle of that, in the middle of all of that, would you just, boy, this is fun. This is good. <laughs> right? It's not like that. But at the very end, see, the end is what's really cool, right? It's at the end. Everything was doubled. And it didn't matter if it hadn't been. Job, at the end of, of the book of Job, saw God more clearly than he'd ever seen him before. He finally saw how big, how omniscient, how omnipotent that God was. But he says, I, literally, I, I am, I'm nothing. I'm nothing in the sight of you. And then God reached out and picked him up. And he used that story to literally enthuse people and encourage them through countless ages. Do you see how God even uses Satan to get his predetermined will? We're here today because we're here because God wants us to be here. Not just here in this place, Ruby Valley Bible Church, on this Sunday morning. We're here on this earth for a time right now. There are men and women and children that you will come in contact with that God has preordained for you to be able to share the gospel. Some of those will respond. Some of, well, they'll all respond either positively for Him through the power. And again, it's not you that makes the difference. It's the Holy Spirit working. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts. It's the Holy Spirit that brings them. But you are the one that gives the message. You are the one that gives the gospel through your life, through your testimony, through your message, the God's Word. It's not by accident that you're here. You are here just like Esther was for just such a time as this. Now, I don't know where that's at for each one of you. I don't even know where it is actually for me. But the more that I yield to God, the more prepared, the more watchful that I am, the clearer that place and journey comes. I tell you, this, this passage in Mark, I can't tell you how many times I've just floated over it. And it all, you know, it, it's cool. It all fits together. You know what? There's minute details. There's minuscule parts in this that are so astounding to me of how God arranged for 3 o'clock Friday afternoon, which was before the foundation of the world set. That time was set, and he brought all of the unknowables, all of the, I would just say, the impossibles to bring them together. Even the ones who wanted to kill him didn't want to kill him. Even Satan didn't want to kill him. Well, we can see that from his temptations. He never wanted Jesus to die because he knew what the Old Testament said, that the Redeemer would come. He would save them from their sins. When John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. It could only happen if he was the Passover. Passover lambs died. I just have to say the same thing. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. And Jesus Christ to stand there and to take all of that. I mean, when's the last time that really, literally, Pilate, his, his last person, that literally had the right to say he's guilty or he's not guilty. He said, behold the man, he's done nothing. He's not, worthy of, he's not worthy of anything. And then sent him out to kill him. The most highly unjust thing ever known, to kill Jesus Christ. And then to know that Judas Iscariot, what a heinous act for him to walk with Jesus Christ for three years and to betray him. It's right there on the level of Adam walking and talking with God every afternoon with God himself. Oh, someday it's going to be like that. <laughs> but to go and choose sin over walking with God? Judas Iscariot to walk with the Son of Man for three years and to betray him for 30 pieces of silver? Wow. The wickedness of men's hearts. 
Jeremiah 17, 9. My heart is desperately wicked. Who could know it? I read the back of the book. And those that trust God win. <laughs> and they win big. Excuse me? That's right. That's right. It's all his story, God's story. We have much to be thankful for. Aren't you glad that Jesus, 48 hours before, said, I'm out of here. I've had enough of these clowns. He said, no, we've got to do it because this is ordained. This, you will never steer away from what God has predicted and, perform, and, and has ordained to be true. It will always come to pass. There are those that say Jesus is never coming back and he hasn't come. It doesn't matter what they think. God has said it. The only thing I'm positive of is that he's not going to destroy the earth by a flood because he said he wouldn't. And the sign is in the skies almost every time we have some kind of a rain event, right? A rainbow. Every single time you see that, you know God is, that's his promise. It's not going to happen. But when you talk about being destroyed by fire, that is coming. That's in 1 Peter. In fact, let's finish. That will be our last verse. It won't be that, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Let's just close right there. 1 Peter chapter 1 speaks to what we've unfolded today. 1 Peter chapter 1, and let's read verses 17 through 21. 1 Peter 1, 17. If you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth, according to every man's work, past the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as you know, pay attention now, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by trans tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest, made clear in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. That, my friends, is a powerful passage of Scripture written by, inspired by the Holy Spirit, yes, but Peter penned those words. The one that walked with him for three years. The one that literally at Pentecost turned the world upside down. Because he saw the Lamb of God. He must have been thinking back, and on that Monday we crowned the Lamb. And on the 14th of Nisan, the Lamb was slain for the world at just the right time. Let's pray. Father God, there's so many things that we don't understand. But thank you, Father, for giving us the Word of God, the Bible, not hiding from us the things that truly are important, showing us who you are, your attributes. To think, Father, how magnificent the timing of this all was, even when those that literally took his life, and I'm saying that carefully because Jesus Christ laid his life down. You had foreordained, as it just said in 1 Peter chapter 1, that it was before the foundation of the world. But those that participated in taking his life, those whose heart was far from you, those that were ready to do all sorts of evil, it was not too early, it was not too late. It was at a perfect timing for your will to be unfolded and accomplished. Father, may we have our hearts prepared. May we be focused upon what you want us to do. I pray for men and women and children across this world today that do not know you as Savior, that relationally do not know you, 
just as those five foolish virgins that were in the right company, just hanging around, but you were vacant from their lives. Father, may the Holy Spirit reach into the depths of those hearts, allowing men, women, and children to see the beauty of the gospel of Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again. You put the stamp of approval upon Jesus' perfect sacrifice, that he was the Passover lamb when he, rose, when he rose from the dead, our true hope in you. Father, we go with that in our minds, in our hearts, asking you to perform whatever it is you need to have done in our lives to bring more and more to Jesus. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the word. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen.